Welcome to the Near Future Navigator podcast, your practical guide to the effects of technology on society, business, law, and social change. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Ludites, sci-fi nerds, business people, ivory tower intellectuals, and those of you who do not speak geek, to the inaugural episode of a Near Future Navigator podcast. First, a little introduction. My name is Adam. I'm a lawyer, a business consultant, a translator of technology into plans and procedures. I have a background in both philosophy and anthropology, and my legal study focused primarily on legislative and administrative law, with some divergence into constitutional law and the study of legal systems construction. I have worked with businesses to plan their adoption of new technologies and help them avoid obsolescence from changing markets through smart partnerships and expanded access. As for me personally, I am constantly fascinated by the way organizations respond to changes in circumstances. Some fail to adapt and collapse under their own weight. An alternative name for this podcast was at one point, Don't Be Kodak. The same could be said for Borders Books, Sports Authority, or Poor Beleaguered Research in Motion as it circles the drain. Other businesses managed to provide the right new product at the right time to create empires. Facebook wasn't a particularly great product when it first came out, but it was better than the existing networks had a built-in initial customer base, and was launched at exactly the right time to take advantage of the feedback loop of ubiquitous computing and the upward curve of smartphone saturation. And this doesn't just occur in the world of business. Government agencies, branches of law, municipalities, and even cities can rise and fall in response to change. Our social institutions and cultural norms change along both the generational line and the upset in social order that comes with the power that technology grants and there is nothing that is guaranteed to change ideas and circumstances that we falsely believe to be fundamental, like the inevitable upward curve of technology. Now that I have introduced myself and my background, I want to clarify the groups of people that I hope will listen to this podcast, and what it is that I hope we can do together. I want to talk to entrepreneurs looking for new market opportunities, legislators, regulators, and government administrators concerned about the impact new technology is having on your community and who want to start managing these problems before they become insurmountable. I want to talk to lawyers who want to understand the way new technology will require changes in our legal systems, changes in our practices, and changes in our clients' needs. Engineers, scientists, and commenters on the sciences who want to join a conversation about the outcomes of the rapid advance of technologies. And citizens who are interested in technology in a practical way and who want to understand how it's changing the world in which you live. I want to talk to people who are tired of our authorities, managers and politicians being reactionary instead of proactive, and ignoring problems until they are forced to confront them. If any of what I just said represents you, then I'm speaking to you. Not just thinkers, but doers. Because we are constantly reaching points where well-thought-out action can result in huge dividends both economically and socially. The speed at which increasingly powerful technology is breaking through to the public is, if not accelerating, much more rapid than we are capable of collectively reacting to without forethought and planning. The size of the institutions that are impacted by technology are much larger and much more entrenched than at any other time in our history. And the number of people who rely on those institutions and can be impacted by changes in how they function is in the billions. So let us discuss the practicalities and the strategies that we need to embrace in order to maximize the benefit of technology and minimize the negative outcomes. These problems aren't insurmountable. They aren't so incomprehensible that we cannot break them into smaller pieces, and they absolutely are not someone else's problem. Now, what this podcast is not. There are many people discussing new technology as it comes out, 
that speculate on how it may be used and how it could change our lives in a classic science fiction style. There are science and technology reporters and science and technology fans. That is not what I plan for this podcast. All of that discussion must be viewed through the lens of the hype curve, discerning where that technology is and how soon it will be adopted, or whether it will vanish into the ether as vaporware that never delivers on its promises. I will, of course, try to answer questions of what, when, and if as it pertains to science and technology. I will even talk about what happens when you jump the curve and push a product before the social landscape is ready for it, the prime example being Google Glass. But I will only act as a technology reporter in order to support my real intent. Every bit of science and technology carries with it change. Change in scarcities, change in human behavior, change in government, change in economics. And what I intend to do is discuss that change, how to manage that change, how to adapt to that change, how to profit from that change. The real nitty-gritty work that needs to be done to minimize damage and maximize result. Changes in regulation, in democratic processes, in business practices, and in cultural ideals. Another thing that I hope to avoid is falling too deeply into the science fiction future hole. I'm not worried about a robot uprising, or a gray goo ecophagy, or the spamularity. That kind of cinematic ludite narrative is common in fiction, and strangely enough, in our news media. These are low-probability outcomes sometime off in the misty future. I want to work on the problems of right now and the near future, the problems that we can avoid by acting today. If the sci-fi outcomes are your concern, I get you. I love them, and I love thinking about them. But consider this. Working to manage technology adoption and social outcomes now helps us to manage the probability of the human species ending abruptly with an oops in the future. And I will, I am sure, dedicate some podcast time to the fun speculation about the science fiction outcomes, if only so I can introduce you to Freeman Dyson and stellar megastructures. But not a great deal of time. I may keep those in my pocket until we need to take a break from a particularly rough or esoteric topic. The last thing, hopefully, this podcast is not is full of terms of art, buzzwords, and business speak. I want to translate issues into clear and concise language. I might pepper discussion with a few nerd references and cultural tropes, but hopefully only those that have reached common knowledge. Now that you have at least a solid understanding of what we are going to try and accomplish together, on to today's topic. I want to talk today about the Dallas Police Department's choice to use a remote-controlled robot to deliver a bomb, to kill a suspect, and the multiple murder of police officers. Now, this may seem a harsh topic for the first podcast, but I think it's an important one. It's also a discussion that is concrete, simple on the surface, but touches on the fundamental cultural and political factors. This incident has also occurred a certain amount of time in the past by the time this podcast is released, and while it may seem that I'm missing the point of greatest public concern, this is intentional. The mass technology media will spend time discussing the science fiction, and only a few people will look at the real risks and costs associated with this incident. In order to dive deeply into this subject, we will have to discuss policing, death, murder, self-defense, and the stability and trust in one of a modern society's foundational structures. This discussion also gives us a jumping-off point for later podcasts. Today we will look at remote-controlled robotics and weapons platforms, but soon I hope to address one of my major concerns about the future, the ethics and regulation of robots, drones, and autonomous AIs. I cannot stress how important it is that we manage these problems before they emerge, and these are problems that are vastly more difficult than the majority of the public realize. So let's dive into the complexity of policing in an age of drones, bots, and a truly connected society. 
The police in Dallas took the life of a suspect who almost certainly murdered five police officers and wounded many others. He was killed after negotiations broke down. This is not a referendum on the choice to use deadly force in this particular incident. What we should be concerned with is the choice of tools to take the suspect's life and what this first incident means for policing generally. Police officers used a bomb disposal robot to carry an explosive device to the suspect. They detonated that explosive and the suspect died. You might think that this is effectively no different than the actions of a police sniper. And yes, a robot in this case is equivalent to a sniper rifle. However, and this is important, it's also equivalent to a drone strike, a remotely delivered munition, a military-style tactic. As a roadmap, I want to talk about this first in terms of the militarization of the police, then in terms of the psychology of drone warfare and killing by remote. And then lastly, I want to talk about the kind of solutions we should be looking at. The solutions part of this discussion is going to be a bit abbreviated in this first podcast, and I will do my best to introduce you to the kind of solutions that I prefer without going too deeply into each. In later podcasts, I will focus more on one or two solutions with a deeper analysis targeted at what I believe to be one of the most pressing parts of the problem at hand. And now, onto the militarization of the police. As a group of people who are called upon to put their lives at risk, It is not unreasonable that the police look to the military for technology and methodology that would keep them safe. And that includes bomb disposal robots, surveillance drones, SWAT tactics, and police snipers. It is a logical next step in that adoption process for the police to utilize their remotes and drones as weapon platforms. The U.S. military has used this strategy, and it requires little retooling of the technology available. In the case of the Dallas shooter, you could have just as easily strapped a grenade to a $50 RC truck with a $20 webcam and reached a similar result. There are hobbyists who have used drones to fire flamethrowers, tasers, and small arms. Others have modded out Star Wars mouse droid kits to carry pistols. A Roomba with a switchblade is internet comedy gold. The practicalities of weaponized robots aren't in question. The economics aren't either. The access of police, military, and business interests are going to make these technologies available sooner rather than later. After all, if a clever dick with a screwdriver can convert a toy into a fire-spewing helicopter, it is not inconceivable that a reasonably clever businessman could set himself up as a mod kit provider to the police, or even establish a business that specializes in commercially available weapon platforms. The only thing standing in the way of this weaponization is regulatory bodies. The FAA has begun looking into weaponized drones, and a few years ago, state legislatures prohibited fire-a-gun-over-the-internet sites, which at least gives us some framework to work from, even if those things never actually existed. This is not a particularly strong start, and trying to get regulatory bodies to prohibit something that would keep police safe is, broadly speaking, laughable, even in this aggressively polarized climate. So the strong probability is that, at least for now, the weaponization of remotely operated machines for police use is going to happen. If we accept that the weaponization of police bots and drones is likely, we need to be concerned about how this represents a trend in the militarization of a domestic peacekeeping force, and how much easier it is to escalate a violent situation when you, the police drone operator, is at no risk of injury yourself, you are charged with the defense of your fellow officers, and you are looking at other people through a computer screen. There are two kinds of police militarization. The first is technological. For an example a bit on the nose, the ability of police departments to purchase certain kinds of surplus military hardware. Currently, this is governed by the 1033 program, and up until a few years ago, 
There was very little scrutiny, either by the public or by the government, on what or how much military hardware was being purchased under this program. We can thank John Oliver for demonstrating to the wider public some of the questionable choices that police departments made in their purchases, such as small rural departments investing in militarized armored personnel carriers, flashbangs, and grenade launchers. An executive order in 2015 has begun to call these expenditures into account, which includes prohibiting the sale of armed aircraft and drones. But again, I want to remind you that the robot used in Dallas was an unarmed-by-design bomb disposal unit, and what was unique about the situation was the application by the police of a military strategy to arm that robot. This brings us to the second kind of militarization, military strategy and tactics. The best example of this, other than the Dallas incident, being SWAT teams. SWAT tactics represent a military approach to policing, and it is binary. Us versus them. We the heroic police against the enemy. When the enemy is clearly defined, then this approach works. But policing is not, should not, and cannot be binary. It is an easy trap to fall into, and an all-too-human one. However, we do want our cops to be safe. If the police need to assault a highly defended warehouse full of illegal weapons or drugs, they should probably be a well-trained, highly-armed SWAT team backed up with a bomb disposal bots, drones, and whatever technological hardware they need. And yet, SWAT teams have been used to serve warrants on homes where children are present. They have been used on non-existent, mistaken, and straight-up fabricated evidence. They are an aggressive, military-style tactic that have been used repeatedly against civilians. Sometimes reasonably, sometimes not. This is the fundamental difference between a military and a domestic policing force. They serve different purposes. It is not PC or particularly progressive to admit, but the use of force against people in other countries that we have politically deemed combatants is vastly different from force and the appearance of force used by a domestic police against citizens on their own soil. The moral implications of this would require days to unpack. So, for this first podcast, I will have to punt on the issue. The act may be the same, the loss of life and the suffering may be the same, but the practicalities and the realities just aren't. So, if our police departments are going to embrace technological or strategic militarization in a responsible, safe, and protective of the public manner, they will need to be as open and accountable to the public as can be maintained without increasing the risk of injury to the police or interfering with their ability to protect and serve. But for that to be true, we will need to know more about the police than we are permitted to know now. It is extremely difficult to get data from the police. Insufficient record-keeping alone leaves much of the police's activities unobserved. The source of that insufficiency can range from poor training to being forced to use out-of-date tools because of a lack of funds. However, this lack of transparency can be intentional. Police departments in Massachusetts attempted to avoid public scrutiny by incorporating their SWAT operations as a private corporation and claiming no obligation to share data under public records law. This particular strategy was overturned after two years through an ACLU lawsuit, ACLU v. Nemlec. But the intent was there, and the police actively fought disclosing data. That being said, many police departments are beginning to share data more freely, to engage in better, more open record-keeping, and to adopt more objective recording devices like body cams and dash cams. But this is the beginning of a trend, not the end of it. Police departments are governed primarily by local politics, ranging from municipalities all the way up to the state level. Reporting requirements, level of responsibility to the public, and level of oversight vary accordingly. 
and any of these trends could easily reverse towards protectionism and a big blue wall of silence. As I was writing this script, the governor of North Carolina signed a bill into law exempting body camera and police dash cam recordings from public records laws, requiring a court order to view them if denied access, and that the only people that may access these recordings are the people who are recorded in them or their personal representatives. The law further states that the court order to view these records may be granted only if the court finds that the police abuse their discretion in denying access. We accept this veil of silence when it comes to the military. Active and short-term reporting on the military can put servicemen and women in a great deal of danger. It can subvert foreign policy and weaken our long-term strategies. The chain of command, broadly speaking, and in most circumstances, acts to assure responsibility over and take responsibility for the actions of our soldiers. And to be fair, there are similar arguments for limiting access to police records, as well as arguments that were predicated on protecting the rights of those people being filmed by the police. The arguments for police protection are strong when it comes to body cams in limited circumstances, but I would argue are weak for dash cam footage and effectively nil for police drones and remotes. In comparison to the North Carolina law, New Hampshire and Minnesota attempt to split the difference, drafting rules for body cam use, protection of the rights of citizens, and mandating the body cam footage be treated as public record in the case of force, felonies, and other issues where the public has an interest. Trying to broadly restrict access to police recordings seems to make superficial sense, but those restrictions limit our ability to determine systemic abuses where each individual action may not rise to the level of lethal force or a complaint filing, but when taken in total represents the kind of abuse that can turn the public against officers who may not even recognize that their decisions represent bias. This is the kind of abuse we should be extremely concerned about in the context of both technological and strategic militarization of the police. And by we, I mean both we the public and our police. The public's eye is on the police, more so than even 10 years ago. The combination of cell phone video recording, easy access to digital platforms to distribute that recording, and formerly disenfranchised groups given mass access to digital distribution to expand their voice is challenging cultural norms like to protect and serve. I am in no way saying that abuse and the reaction to abuse is new, but the ability to challenge and disrupt norms with this kind of effect is. The thousands of police departments and domestic policing organizations run the risk of exacerbating the existing problems of police trust by embracing militarization without openness. There is a feedback effect between a public that no longer trusts the police and police militarization in response to a perceived threat. Adding faceless drones and bots into the mix could very well accelerate that feedback, especially when given the next topic, what it means for police to interact with the public through remotes. As of right now, I want to remind you that the first use of an armed remote by police to kill was almost certainly 99% or higher warranted. There was a clear chain of command. There was a high degree of necessity. Negotiations had been attempted and had broken down. The suspect was uniquely interested in killing officers. Options were few. Non-lethal alternatives were extremely risky, and orders were top-down. But armed remotes, like SWAT teams, are unlikely to be limited to just those circumstances. Convenience, cost-effectiveness, and the safety of officers is almost certainly going to drive the use of these tools. As amusing as it is to imagine Chappie or Ed 209 policing our streets, the far more likely outcome is the use of these remotes to support and assist officers in the field. 
and at least some of those remotes will be capable of lethal force. And while military drone strikes are hierarchically and bureaucratically decided, ordered, and carried out, and military use of weaponized robots like the one in Dallas by soldiers in the field are subject to review by the Military Code of Justice, we allow police officers a great deal of leeway in the decision to use deadly force against anyone they perceive to be a threat. That leeway is a major contributing factor to the current unrest and distrust of the police. Let's imagine for a moment that the police expand on the use of armed remotes with no major policy changes in our approach to the police authority to use lethal force. Police will be manning these remotes and making decisions in the moment whether to use force or not, with little input from their superiors and questionable oversight after the fact by the courts and the police political system. So how are they going to act? The operators themselves will not be in danger, but will be acting to support and defend officers who will be at risk. The operators will be viewing the situation at a distance, through a series of cameras displayed on a screen. There is a frightening balance of psychological effects on these officers. Being distanced from the action leaves them vulnerable to the vagaries of the online disinhibition effect. Being asked to defend officers in the field with little risk to themselves can encourage risky action and threat escalation. As far as I know, there are few studies on the use of force and drone warfare in a military context but the ones I have read even the abstracts of imply that it is easier both politically and cognitively to use drones than it is to use traditional soldier-based warfare, lowering the bar to their use. This is something we should be aware of, but should demand a great deal of consideration and research on. I do not know if the correlation will hold up when transferred to a domestic setting. I do not know if the research done to date is representative, but what I do understand reasonably well is the online disinhibition effect that I mentioned a moment ago. I am a gamer. I'm a participant in social media. I spend time in comment threads and internet discussion forums. I've been on Reddit, but never attained Reddit gold. I have met the basement dweller, the forum troll, the ganker, the griefer, and the people who hide the dark tetrad of personality traits behind the pseudo-anonymity of the internet. Back in 2004, Jay Suler published a paper titled The Online Disinhibition Effect. In it, he looked at the ways that being distanced from other people changes how you behave towards them. I won't dive too deeply into the theory, but there are six contributing factors, of which three bear on the issue of police remotes. You don't know me, you can't see me, and it's just a game. You don't know me is simple anonymity. The identity of the officer operating the remote is hidden from the people on the other end. Even knowing that this anonymity can be pierced after the fact does not necessarily overcome that lack of face-to-face -face identification because of the next factor. You can't see me. Much, if not most, of our identity is tied up in what we think we look like to others. We portray identity through visual cues. The officer operating the drone could be a woman, a man, intersex, tall, short, strong, black, white, or any of the near-infinite number of variables that encompass the human condition. But the people whom the officer is facing cannot see any of this. The officer is freed from being recognized on the street, from being judged based on their gender or height or race. On one hand, this is amazing. That kind of freedom from unfair judgment is rare. But ponder for a moment what this means for the officer. The normal authority cues and body language that we portray will be missing. The face-to-face -face responsibility of knowing that the public will recognize you for your actions will be gone. This is a troubling idea. So much of our human interaction is based on social judgment, and without that feeling in the moment to keep us in line, there is an opportunity for abuse. 
The last element leads us to an even more worrying question. It's just a game. From Suler's standpoint, he was addressing the kind of solipsism that internet dwellers develop in seeing the online world as an unreal consequence-free game. Without the social cues of face-to-face -face communication, seeing other people at the end of a computer screen makes it more difficult to see them as people. The police operating these bots and drones will be looking at the situation at the remove. There will be people they know and identify with, and people that they are encouraged by society, training, and self-interest to think of as the other, as opponents. They will also be shielded from personal risk. Injury to the bot will not be injury to them. There will be no pain for the operator. Risky and aggressive behavior won't carry the same intuitive aversion responses. Combined with the feeling of responsibility and loyalty to the officer on the scene, there will be a real danger of escalation. All of this is beside the changes in behavior that the officers on the scene will exhibit, knowing that they have armed drones as backup. Now, on a case-by-case -case basis, it is currently difficult, shading to impossible, to decide what the determining factor in a police officer's choice to use force is in any specific situation. Decisions stemming from instinct are mistakenly considered to be reached rationally. Asking questions after the fact is unreliable, because human memory is spotty and subject to revision through post hoc justification. And no, I'm not hinting in any way that the police are lying about their reasons, or would lie if asked. I'm saying that human nature makes it extremely difficult to determine why a person acted if your primary source of information is asking questions after the fact. As we add more remote-controlled tools to policing, more objective data is generated. Each individual action taken by a drone can be recorded, along with the footage from the camera feed and other sensors. If the public and the scientific research community is given sufficient access to the data from the use of these tools, we might, over time, be able to identify and regulate emergent problems from their use. But wouldn't you rather try and manage these problems before they happen? And now at last, let's talk solutions. Let's talk about trying to fix these problems before they are unfixable, become part of a broken norm, and before we can grasp them as the opportunities that they are. Now, first, who wants to build robots for the police? I'm dead serious. With more and more of the big technology players investing into robotics, the opportunities for smaller businesses expanding to meet the needs of the police is only going to grow. Google and Honda are focusing on the commercial robot market in a fuzzy, warm, everyday helper bot kind of way. But the technology of remotes is nowhere near as complex as building a robotic-made or bipedal disaster recovery bot, or horrifying cheetah robot for that matter. Creating modification kits for existing robots, with advice from an attorney to avoid all those horrible DMCA, EULA restrictions for modding someone else's robot, is even less complex. Finding that small hobbyist or new engineering graduate with an idea for building armed remotes and a police department interested in expanding its tool set could very well lead to a U.S. Robotics or Tyrell Corp. Hopefully with less murder and slavery, but that's what I'm leading up to. If we want to avoid terrifying science fiction outcomes, how do we moderate and safely regulate the militarization of the police? Well, to start, let's lead off with better data. And that will mean leaning on police organizations for access and poking holes in the restrictive red wall statutes some states are enacting to allow research organizations into police data. This is a legislative problem and a political one. It will probably even need the partnership between a research organization like a university or think tank partnering with federal agencies to push it through. 
More data is better data in the age of big data analytics. If we want the best understanding of police militarization moving forward into the age of armed remotes, we will need data from as many police agencies as possible. Identifying variables in geography, economics, culture, political identity, and yes, even information relating to race. For the specific uses of armed flying drones, we could start by partnering with the FAA. It's within their remit, and they already have begun investigating instances of armed modified commercial flying drones. That wonderful firecopter I mentioned before. If you have the time, it's well worth watching on YouTube. Guaranteeing access to police drone usage under the FAA umbrella would be a place to start the legislative process, but what is really needed is a blanket access for research purposes. Now, remember when I was discussing the justification for restricting police access to body cam footage? Protecting the police from people who would use that footage to predict and subvert police procedures for criminal gain is one. Protecting the public from invasion of privacy is another. These issues would still hold true if we were not careful in how we permitted research organizations to access and store police data. But those problems are also solvable. Restrictions in access, double-blind controls for researchers' access to the data itself, limiting partnerships to large organizations like I mentioned earlier with sufficiently robust rules for responsibility and objectivity. This would be a good place to start for understanding police militarization with the tools they have now, but insufficient if we want to predict the effects of the use of armed remotes. If we want to really manage the problems faced by police forces generally and the additional layers of complexity added by armed remotes, we will need better, more consistent, and more comprehensive analytics of police as individuals. This touches on an aspect of the human condition that will be widely challenged over the next 10 years, whether people can and should be quantified, and who owns the information. Political parties, advertisers, and mass market corporations already quietly sift through public data to quantify and qualify individuals. Facebook does it. Google's test analytics systems are starting to do it too. Attitudes, aptitudes, biases, preferences. All of these are quantifiable if you are willing to put in the work to discover them. And while insisting on regular Voigt-Kampf tests for our police could in theory give us the information we want, the effect on their morale would be irreversible. Plus the one in a million chance you uncover a replicant, or worse yet, find out that you are one, Mr. Decker. There are better ways to create data points than just polling the police. Remember earlier when I pointed out how difficult it is to identify the root cause of an officer's use of force? What if we built a game or a test that was realistic enough to simulate the experience of operating an armed remote? Played enough times and enough variations, we could build a reasonable understanding of officers' motivations, and an even better understanding of the priorities and variables in a particular region or police precinct. A training tool, a skill check, and a data analytics system wrapped up in one. This is a theme I will return to quite a lot in this podcast, games and analytics for human understanding. It's an incredibly powerful tool. It's a potentially very lucrative industry. It's also a possible source of incredible oppression if managed incorrectly. If you enjoy thinking about the dreary, very human abuses of technology and haven't watched Black Mirror, please do. Gives me the giblies. Let's assume we can expand our data gathering of police action and the reliability and complexity of our analytics. 
Let's assume one of this podcast's listeners built a business on gamified training simulations and big data understanding of the police. What do we do with this information? How do we manage the push and pull between police interest, public interest, and the political interests that control both? The easiest way is to create an industry association. Build a few businesses that sell or modify armed remotes to the police, partner with the big robotics and drones manufacturers, and use the collective power of the market and self-regulation to manage the use and sale. Standardized and well-drafted end-user licensing agreements, interaction with local politics and local marketing to try and manage the problem. Industry associations are the easiest and quickest way, but the least powerful, least predictable, and are wildly susceptible to larger business interests taking over and running for their own benefit rather than trying to solve the problem of police remotes. It's also the least consistent geographically. Local monopolies and local politics will guarantee variation in how the problem is managed. The next solution is a longer-term, deeply political one, but that's the point of starting these solutions today rather than waiting for a police department to accidentally blow up a school bus with a quadcopter. Basic constitutional law grants the police power to the states, and the federal government only has the power to regulate federal law enforcement agencies, which is a problem. State and local politics are too fractured and unrelated to each other to expect any kind of predictable regulation of these tools. But there are ways that the federal government can regulate police armed remotes. The federal legislature isn't really capable of dealing with the problem on its own. Regulating any kind of firearm is still a giant cluster, and for the moment, probably impossible. The executive branch has already tightened the strings on which military hardware the police are permitted to purchase. But letting the president interfere directly in local police affairs is troubling, to say the least. But an agency with a specific interest in the management and regulation of armed remotes and robotics with a grant program to allow local police to adopt these tools? There are already grant and surplus hardware sale programs under varied federal agencies. Three-letter acronyms across the board work with state and local police to enhance their capabilities with everything from military hardware to bulletproof vests and enhanced IT services. While we could try to build programs through one of the existing three-letter acronyms, none of them really have the expertise or power to regulate tools like this. What we really need is a separate agency, backed by the legislative power of the purse through a grant program, with the power to regulate and oversee the use of armed remotes and robots purchased through grant funds, something like a National Transit Highway Safety Administration with specific and limited authority over the police, establishing rules and regulations, and making grant usage dependent on adopting those rules, which would give us a leg up on regulating and increase the funds available for the business community to supply bots to the police. Win-win. We would even accelerate the adoption pace while managing the risks. If we really wanted to think ahead, we could provide this new agency administrative law judicial powers, an appeals and review process for the use of armed remotes on the federal level. I imagine that many states, North Carolina being one, would see this as an unconstitutional overreach and interfering in state sovereignty. But I can only imagine having both their state and local police agencies pushing for federal funding for armed remotes and the ACLU supporting the establishment of an objective federal process for police oversight in drone use would make even the most states' rights-centric politician think twice. This is the kind of planning I like. No zero-sum winners and losers. Business and politics working together. Managing the public response before something awful happens.
So this wraps up the first installment of Near Future Navigator. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode where we will talk about self-driving cars, why they will be here sooner than you think, why they are so disruptive a technology, why their benefits will outweigh their costs, and how we can solve the problems they will create, and take advantage of their power to reshape how we move people and packages from place to place. Thank you, and good night, fellow problem solvers.